Fade time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. How can we get to this problem? And what can we do about it? And all of us... Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up. Those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. And today is March 16th, 2004. March is International Women's Month, which gives me a chance, um, you know, to talk a little bit about the war on the feminine principle, although I try to talk about that all the time. Once in a while I see people's eyes glaze over because, of course, feminism is not particularly fashionable just now. What with all the, uh, well, you know, there's a serious backlash. I am relieved to see that Amnesty International has made it official that they have actually declared that women are under attack. Uh, I, I like, you know, to have these things um, uh, legitimized. All over the globe, women are taking it. Uh, it's... Well, whether it's a state of siege or a reign of terror kind of depends on uh, who you are, where you live, what class you're living in, what culture, and so on. What was it? Old Napoleon always said women have no class. It depends on the men with whom they find favor, you know. <laughs> anyway, females are always threatened as women. We see that in the military. They're having a rough time just at present. We thought that that would mellow out, but not so. I, I see them, even, um, what we call overclass women, uh, are flat catchers very often. Think of the Hillary Clintons, the Nancy Reagans, even, even little Princess Di. And this week there's poor Martha Stewart. The woman is a billionaire, or she was at one point. Um, but, of course, when it's time to make an example, when it's time to burn a witch, uh, she makes a much more exciting target than some suit. I'm still not sure how, just how she managed to hang herself, uh, but she's certainly a convenient scapegoat in today's climate. You know, she's blonde and she's bitchy and an uppity entrepreneur. She bested some of the best men in business, and we can't have that. Who wouldn't enjoy her fall? There was a magazine this week. I can't remember. It was, you know, Newsweek, I think. Um, one of the major news rags. It featured Martha's face, Martha Stewart, with just the huge word cooked right across the front of the uh, the page, the cover. 
And that's when it hit me. It just went right through my brain. I thought, of course, cook this. Burn her. A witch burning. The woman at the stake. What a fine image. Uh, actually, I, I don't know whether Martha's going to have to do time. It does seem awfully wasteful of public resources. Surely she could be ordered to do community service for couple of decades and uh, pay some bills. But anyway, uh, it's a curious thing, this subject of, uh, what is it? Uh, let's call it the subject of abuse, violence, sadism, something that our species, it's so pervasive and so vast, you have to narrow it down into a little pocket, you know, so that it means something. You know, um, whether it's Martha Stewart or whether it's this family of nine murdered women and children that's in the news this week, uh, you know, a cauldron of incest, polygamy, and all the horrors. If you analyze it, it all does come down to a question of uh, patriarchal power and control. Uh, the word patriarchal is so offensive to so many men that I always hesitate to use it, but I can't think of a better word to um, describe the state of our global culture. You know, it's a time of uh, militarism, a time in which uh, the real war is just the war against violence. Our war, our struggle is against the kind of um, situation in which violence is always used to uh, to meet violence and things just spin out of control. Something in our human psychology we just want to be the boss of it. And uh, they call this uh, political reality. I was thinking, when it comes down to the specific, the individual crimes, I always think of Gloria Steinem. Once she said, oh, there are no crimes of passion. There are only crimes of possession. I think that was back during the OJ trial. little light went on in my brain and I thought of course um, we simply want to be in charge we want to play God it's not that women are the exclusive victims I mean <laughs> look what we we discovered when we turned over St. Peter's Rock yeah take a real look at the Catholic Church the Catholic priests of course um, those are uh, children uh, still they are the the powerless the weak uh, Lena Wertmuller used to say, oh yes, they're honorary women, they're, they're the South, they're the working class. Anyway, what we call the underclass, the people who can be exploited. And of course, in many parts of the world, women are legally children, that is, property. They have no rights, they are not full citizens. Uh, can you imagine a world, I, I think I was walking down here today, listening to my little radio, and once again, uh, yes, bomb threats, uh, threats of terrorism over this question of whether or not the women will wear a headscarf in France. Ah, well, it's a world, it's a world I never made. Uh, I'm uh, going to be part of an event. Uh, it's going to deal with abuse, and I was just leading up to that. I wanted to read you quickly uh little piece um, it's the 25th of March it's at Pro Arts Gallery in Oakland 
And it's an evening event, Thursday, 25th March, about 7 o'clock. And we're going to use both personal and political material, which, of course, is the same. We are our stories. Whether it is the story of our personal um, personal pain or whether it is a story that's coming over the news, you know, the disaster de jour, which never lets up. Uh, it's all the same pattern. Um, there will be poets and artists. The poet Alta is going to be there. Alta started Shameless Huzzy Press back in the 70s, right here in Berkeley. There's an art exhibit there, which will be, yes, it'll be there, the gallery hours are 11 to 5, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And the art show runs through the end of the month. Now, what I'll do is I'll get the artist on here next Tuesday, and she can give you a lot of details and tell you all about it. Pro Arts is a gallery located on 9th Street in downtown Oakland. It's in the block just north of Broadway. Get to Broadway and 9th. When I go there, I take BART, I get off at the 12th Street exit, 12th and Broadway, walk two blocks to Pro Arts. That section of town is quite arty these days. There have been a lot of interesting changes. Anyway, um, yes, I'll bring the artist here next Tuesday, and we can tell you all about uh, that, more details about what's going to happen that night. I... I don't have a price on it, but I'm assuming that it is free. Uh, what I want to do now is to read you a little bit of a story that dates back. I went back in my in my files as far back as I could go. I found a story published in 1977, and it was in the era before abuse had become, what is that, um... Uh, a mass media topic. It was even before recovered memory syndrome was popular. And uh, since then, I, I, um, I've i let it all go because it seems to be too, what's the word? Um, uh, it's too categorical somehow. Uh, and uh, the journalists are doing a pretty good job on it. I tried to turn it into fiction, a kind of fiction, um, impressionistic uh, stuff. What I did do was uh, I took a story that uh, uh, I felt was um, uh, revealed a kind of soul, soul murder. Um, it's what happens to a lot of children in our culture. And I think I was doing experiments. I was getting my master's in creative writing and... Uh, I wanted to, I wanted to sort of show a speaker. Uh, I used a first-person voice. I wanted to show the the speaker's denial, not so much of the facts, but of their effect on her. Um, the speaker has blocked out the parts of her story that she couldn't handle, buried them uh, once again for 25 years. And at that point, um, let's see, she's about she would be about 35. The memory surfaces. She recognizes not only why she buried the memory, but how it has affected her conscious choices. This story is called Blood Rust, and I think I have just about enough time to read it to you. It's in a collection of prose pieces called Over by the Caves. And uh, there are a couple of ongoing characters. Uh, 
One was my mother's best friend, Anna, who is a character, what is it, I would call her, today they would call her a role model. <laughs> the person, the person whose presence keeps you sane, the sort of human being that if you are a lucky child, you have a few people like this around, people who make you know that you're all right. Um, they're the safe people, the people who guide you and on whom you imprint. That's the word the psychiatrists use these days. Anyway, this story is called Blood Rust. And uh, we used to, it was one of the pieces we used to do in the local coffee houses. Anna, as I've told you, knew me when I was just a little kid. She made me doll clothes and that stuff. Twenty years after my mother died, I called Anna on the phone. It was 1967. I was living in San Francisco and she was living in Sin. She had some money from Social Security and a lover she found when she dialed a wrong number. They recognized each other's voices at once. They were set up together in Venice, California. I told Anna while I was getting a divorce. Oh, that's great, she said. I asked her about the panic and the money and the kids. She said I'd get used to it. It just panic, she said. She was so blithe, so Catherine Hepburn when there's nothing left to lose. How was it, I wonder, Anna was so golden and my mother was so blue. They were best friends till mother died. All those years until 1947, the first century of my life. Mother died before she even got through the menopause. Before she died, my father tried to straighten her out. He kept asking her what she wanted all the time. She said she didn't know. He gave her all the things she asked him for. There was the house with the pepper trees planted all around, giving us shade in the desert, and there were so many trees and everything so clean and the washing sent out and everything put away always and things in order every day before lunch and a maid to start dinner so mother could take me to the swimming pool. She hadn't wanted the babies, though, three of us. He had to drag us out of her. Mother went to New York every other year to visit her older sister. Her sister, my aunt, had dark, dark hair. She had a job with an advertising department at Saks. My aunt had only been married once and then... Only for a year, she had one son sent him off to military school. She had an apartment in the East Sixties in Manhattan. Odd years, she'd take the train out west to see us. Even years, my mother went to Manhattan. She'd come home with reddish blonde hair done up in beauty shop ways. She'd be cheerful and high for a few days, and then she'd be depressed again and get that vacant look. She would sit and stare at half a grapefruit in front of her on the breakfast table. I'd leave for school, and I'd tell her I was going, and she'd still be staring into the grapefruit and never look up to say goodbye. My mother never yelled much. Uh, she was always sweet, soft, kind. She was always putting things away. She would say sometimes, I, I don't care what you do with it, just get it out of sight. She didn't like clutter. It made her cry sometimes. She said men could not clean up the house because they never got in the corners. They overlooked things. When she was in college, she studied architecture 
Frank Lloyd Wright was her favorite person. She said the eyes should rest, surfaces should be smooth. Each time I set out dolls on my pillow or perfume bottles on my dressing table, she took them and put them away in a drawer. She was always telling us not to leave stuff lying on the bed. If I got mad, she would tell me that since I didn't change my sheets or sweep my floor, I didn't have any say in the matter. I didn't really care. I let her do things for me. I wanted to play all day on the beach and go to the pool all through the Tucson winter. I let my mother arrange things. After she began to drink too much, my father paid me 25 cents each morning to fix him tea and a piece of toast. I just used hot tap water and a tea bag. He'd sit at the kitchen table and stare out the window. Looking at the trees in the desert or in the summer, he'd stare at the sea and drink the tea and be very, very nice, nice to me. He had to get up early every morning and do surgery. He always told me to remember when I grew up to get up early and fix my husband something to eat first thing every morning and never, never to leave dishes in the sink. My mother was not, as I said, uh, mean to us, exactly, only to him. She provoked him into fights. She hadn't wanted three kids, she told him. That was his idea, and who had a right to have kids during the Depression anyway? Oh, she had two girls first, and then finally, finally, she had the boy. Oh, she doted on him. She said I was cute. My sister was bright, and my brother was sweet, stuff like that. She died when my brother was nine. She died and left him when he was nine. When I was nine, my mother's sister's son came to stay with us. He was on vacation from his military school. His mother wanted him to spend his summer with a real family. You know, brothers and sisters to play with. My father didn't like him. He had allergies. My father said that was phony, and my mother thought it was funny. She gave him a goose feather pillow and told him it was chicken feathers. Uh, he didn't break out at all. Uh, I guess his goose feather allergy was a myth. My mother thought he had psychosomatic allergies because he'd been in military school for ten years. He was 17. He had dark, dark hair. He couldn't stay with his mother in her Manhattan apartment. He stayed with different people when the school was out. While he stayed with us that summer, he showed me his genitals and what they were for. I was too small for much more. Uh, he did try, I remember just recently, how it was and how I was sitting on a toilet and bleeding while he told me not to tell my mother. He was sitting on the edge of the bathtub. It was a beach house bathtub with rusty claw feet. And I knew I would never tell my mother because, well, I was too embarrassed, too ashamed. Besides, I wouldn't have known what to tell her. As I got older, I forgot all about the bleeding. I only remembered the parts about being sort of molested. I forgot about the bleeding until just a few years ago. I did remember always that, well, that, well, he had played around, he said, and he'd been very nasty, and, 
Then, after he had shown me how, well, it got worse. Most of the boys uh, went along. The other children played. Uh, I remember the excitement. I remember the fear. And I remember the terror of wondering whether anyone would tell. The curious thing is, I forgot all about the loss of my maiden head. My holy hymen. I didn't fool around again. That's the way we put it, fool around again, until I was twenty. By that time, I was old enough to have a regular affair, you know, like in the movies. I thought that, well, my hymen had just faded away, you know. Years passed. I got married. I got divorced. And I never thought about anything except perhaps why I was still lonely. Then... I went to the seashore one summer to visit Anna. She was staying in a house with a bathtub. It was a rusty bathtub. The screens there were rusty and the sink was rusty. I was 36 years old. I sat on the edge of her bathtub and I picked up Anna's little girl grandchild. I picked her up from the toilet and I set her down on the tiles. And there, next to her little five-year-old feet, were the rusty claw feet of the old bathtub. And the little girl, Anna's little grandchild, she had painted the toenails a bright blood color. <laughs> she had taken nail polish and painted the rusty claw feet on the tub. The blood-red polish was dripping still. Some of it was on the floor, spots of it here and there where she made a mess. I went out to the kitchen then to tell Anna about this dredging up, this memory of my maidenhead and how I lost it. I told her it was a, a satisfaction, you know, remembering what happened and how we were because... I always thought it sort of just faded away, whereas now that I had remembered that blood, well, it was clear that it had been broken in the classic sense, the way it happens in plays and novels. Anna looked at me and went out of the room when she came back with a bottle of brandy, put it on the kitchen table. She sat down and poured herself half a glass. She drank some and gave me the rest. Oh, well, I told her, you see, I mean, it, it wasn't rape exactly, just, uh, well, just child m molestation. I mean, I said, he was a child, uh, legally, 17, Anna gave me some more brandy, and so I told her all about being raped by a regular rapist when I was an adult. It's a very bad scene, as they say. Worst thing I remember about that poor creep was when he told me he wouldn't harm my daughters if I did as I was told. It was very dark in my Berkeley apartment. I was alone with the ones he called my daughters. Baby boys in their cribs at the time, they had long, reddish, golden hair like my mother's. I saw to it that he didn't touch them. I have always been very careful never to give birth to a daughter. I have painted a portrait of the daughter that I won't have. Her name is Joy. 
I gave birth to her when I was nine. She was born dead, of course, but I still dream of her. The last time I saw her in a dream, she was only a baby. They would not let me take her home from the hospital. She said, well, they said, she should stay there with the others there behind the glass. The glass was so thick. Her portrait is almost finished now. She is a satyr. She is a sadist with dark, dark hair. She is a changeling who wants to torment and torture. She is my primal, my natural child. When she grows up, there will always be a little trickle of blood on her hand or on her little claw feet. Now, that was an interesting piece that um, I was playing with. Um, I remember one teacher saying that the images were a bit heavy-handed, and I said, well, you know, uh, they weren't images at all. That was the way it was. And she said, well, dear, reality is not necessarily um, uh, the kind of thing that will move the reader. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to say once again that on the 25th of March at 7 o'clock, I will be at Pro Arts with some other uh, artists, poets, and writers, and we will be talking um, about the subject of abuse. Um, I think sometimes I prefer the term sadism. I think it is better to be uh, out front about these things. One more thing I wanted to tell you about before I go off the air today. Uh, in Berkeley, in the East Bay, we have a little newspaper called Street Spirit, and uh, there's a um, column called Poor Leonard's Almanac, and Leonard's a friend of mine, uh, and this month and last month, he used uh, uh, women's words only, it's um, basically a page of quotations, and he called up Rosalie Maggio, a wonderful woman who's the editor of the New Beacon Book of Quotations by Women. And in February, she did um, Women's Reflections on Poverty, and in March, she's doing Women's Reflections on War. And it speaks to this issue, you know, of violence. Uh, it's so complicated because we're dealing with language here. We all know that... Uh, it is language that creates our world. Everything that you do in a war is, of course, a crime in peace. <laughs> so, you know, makes it kind of hard to talk about things like murder, rape, you know. Uh, these are patriotic things if you do them outside your country. <laughs> right, here's one quote. The worst barbarity of war is that it forces men collectively to commit acts which individually they would revolt uh, from with their whole being. Uh, it, it's, so, it's so curious. Um, check out your local street spirit. It only costs a dollar, and it does support the local homeless who are selling it on the street. Uh, the women's reflections on war can be found in Poor Leonard's Almanac on page 13, and it's Rosalie Maggio's collection of quotes um, women writers and 
women politicians and thinkers. Uh, the last one here is from Eve Neriam, right? I dream of giving birth to a child who will ask me, Mother, what was war? This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. The 19th Annual Jewish Music Festival takes place March 20th to 27th. Celebrate Klezmer from David Krakauer's Klezmer Madness and guest DJ So-Called to a Klezmer Swing Dance Party. Music that soars through shtetl roots through jazz and swing to the outer reaches of hip-hop. Make your own music at a Klezmer Jam. Be inspired, too, by Ronnie Gilbert of the world-famous folk group The Weavers. For tickets, call 925-866-9599 or online at www.brjcc.org. This event benefits the Berkeley Richmond Jewish Community Center. On the one-year anniversary of the bombing of Iraq, we call on all freedom-loving peoples to join the Strength and Unity Contingent, organized by Thurgold Forces on March 20th for the International Day of Action. March in support of self-determination for the people of Iraq and Palestine. Show our resistance to destructive U.S. policies at home and abroad. The Strength and Unity Contingent includes people and organizations representing oppressed communities and our allies. Meet us at 24th Street and Mission in San Francisco at 10 a.m. for a pre-March rally where folks can share our struggles and perspectives before we join up with the main anti-war demonstration. Hey, hey, hey.